Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, political science, and culture. Today's topic is the art of conversation. Our first speaker today will be Paula Morantz-Cohen, who is the dean of the Honors College at Drexel University. Paula just released a new book entitled Talking Cure, an essay on the civilizing power of conversation. I want to hear from Paula about what is critical to a successful conversation and why we should care. Our second speaker is Darren Schwartz, who is our What Happens Next film critic. I've asked Darren to review three of my favorite films that deal directly with talk. They are Woody Allen's Annie Hall, David Mamet's Glenn Gurry, Glenn Ross, and Spike Jones's movie, Her. Darren is always super entertaining, so I look forward to hearing about what makes these films so good. Let's begin this podcast with Paula Cohen. Good conversation has both personal and communal value. It can enliven our lives, and it can help us connect and better understand each other. I derived the title of my book, Talking Cure, from Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis and pioneer of so-called talk therapy. Freudian analysis is not a real conversation, but it does provide some elements in common with genuine conversation and its ability to uplift and even heal. Conversation is not about winning an argument. It's not a debate. To engage well is to be less devoted to one's point of view than to the engagement itself. I want to point to three factors that can contribute to one's ability to converse well. One is the right atmosphere and accoutrements. Good food and drink in an inviting setting relaxes the body and mind and opens it to the pleasures of literal and metaphorical nourishment. Virginia Woolf, in her 1929 essay, A Room of One's Own, describes the wonderful conversation at an elite men's college. She first describes the sumptuous meal served at the college and then continues, and I quote, Thus, by degrees, was lit halfway down the spine, which is the seat of the soul, the profound, subtle, and subterranean glow, which is the rich yellow flame of rational intercourse. No need to hurry. No need to sparkle. No need to be anybody but oneself. By contrast, the women's college, where she goes to dinner that night, has fewer resources, and she has served a meager meal. The result is accordingly different. She writes, A good dinner is of great importance to good talk. One cannot think well, love well, sleep well, if one has not dined well. I wholeheartedly agree with this, though a good hamburger in a pleasant setting will do as well as filet mignon in a luxurious one. It's the atmosphere of leisure and well-being that counts most, along with a companion willing to be open and engaged. The second factor that can aid conversation is having contact with the French, who as a people and culture are adept at conversation. I was fortunate in being able to spend a year in France following college. The French had a history of salon culture where men and women mixed together informally. The cafes that so generously spot French streets have also created the cultural habit of using leisurely observation as a food for talk. The third point that I want to emphasize as supportive of good conversation is the college seminar. Nowadays, we see an impoverishment 
a free and joyful talk on the college campus. This is a result of several things. The fear of offending or being ostracized for one's views, a careerist focus that makes students and faculty feel they shouldn't be wasting time just talking, and a lack of practice in conversation owing to the pervasiveness of social media and the restraints that conditioned so many of us during the COVID-19 lockdown. Good conversation requires practice. It also requires a tolerance for disagreement to propel it. When everyone's afraid or unwilling to disagree, this is certain to turn the conversation into an exchange of platitudes. Which brings me to the college seminar as a practice site for conversation, where students can learn to talk and listen well before going out into the world. Conversation when entered into with goodwill is one of the great pleasures of life, a way of strengthening our sense of community and our ability to empathize and tolerate difference. We need to talk to each other to support personal and societal mental health. If we don't, we risk becoming an inarticulate, incurious, and deeply fragmented society. In your book, you mentioned that you discussed literature with your French cab driver. French students are exposed to their literary canon. In preparation for a podcast recently on AP testing, I reviewed the recent English literature AP test. They asked students to write an essay on a topic, and students were encouraged to write from a list of novels. I had read only a few, like Great Expectations, Catch-22, and 1984, but I hadn't even heard of many of them. Based on what I saw at my kids' private schools, the American literary canon seems to be in flux. Do you find that problematic, that my kids' generation can't make references to the same canon when they converse? It's something I feel strongly about. My husband and I went to Yale when the canon was still intact. He and I have this education that we draw on constantly and with our friends. And I don't think our kids have that. Now, they do have television and movies and so forth, and they do read books, but they don't have a coherent group of works to refer to. But I do believe that an education should involve a shared group of works. I don't even care that much what they are. I would like them to be excellent. But of course, I know that people's notions of what is excellent may differ. But the idea that there should be an idea of greatness there, which again has come under attack. The French do have a very centralized educational system. They still feel very proud of their literary inheritance and their language. And that gives them a certain kind of ability to talk. As I say in the book, the cabbies talk to me, that's concierge, others. A respect for language is what makes a civilization flourish and what makes conversation so interesting with people on the street. But when you talk about solid conversation, you want to dig deeply into ideas. I think it is helpful to have these touchstones these greats to talk about who have thought deeply about the human condition. After reading your book, I took your suggestion and read Virginia Woolf's Room of One's Own. And I read that section you quoted that compared Oxbridge with a woman's college. My interpretation was that Woolf was frustrated that women were not included in the male world more than the access to the high quality food. 
I agree with you there. And in fact, I had cut from my discussion. You can have a good hamburger and have a great conversation. I think it's the relative impoverishment of the women versus the men. It's their subordinate status that is reflected in the meal that she's talking about. There is a need on the part of the women to prove themselves, to be brilliant. She makes the point that in the men's conversation, there's no desire to be brilliant. And conversation is communal and accepting and tolerant and open. Meals at faculty clubs are less frequent, especially interactions with different departments. Why has there been a social breakdown in faculty conversations? In the universities, there is far more of a competitiveness, and the publisher-parish idea has taken on a more frenetic quality. In the STEM fields, there is a sense in which you're constantly having to get grants and to build your laboratories and so forth. In the humanities, the jobs are dwindling. The Modern Language Association made a point of saying you can't use collegiality as a standard for granting tenure. If someone is uncollegial, you can't deny them tenure because of it. It was the recipe for the old boy network where, you know, they would give someone tenure because he fit in with the boys. But the other side of this is that you get very misanthropic or difficult individuals who have no interest in the conversation that I associated with academic life. I feel very lucky. That conversation over lunch that could last as long as two hours or more was to me what made the university life so appealing. But it has disappeared and the faculty clubs have either dwindled, as you say, or closed entirely. I mean, we used to have a little bar at Drexel where the president would hang out. This was 30 years ago, but that closed in the early 90s and the faculty club as well. I know many places still have faculty clubs, but they are not well attended. Other things seem to academics to be far more important than conversation, which seems like it's frivolous. During my podcast and AP testing, Patrick Allett discussed the University Academy's decision to reduce the offerings of survey classes in English and history. I looked to see if these survey courses were offered at Penn or the University of Chicago, and they were not. But introductory survey courses were available at Northern Illinois. Why do you think survey courses have been abandoned by the top-tier universities? It's nonsense. This is one of my gripes. We had some sort of peer review of our English department that does have survey courses, but peer reviewers from other schools said, You need sexier courses. So a survey course is not a sexy course. I mean, really, I think it's also faculty research interest that they need to publish so they teach courses within their field of research, which tend to be very esoteric, very narrow. But the survey course is like the canon. Someone has to make a decision as to what constitutes proper works for a survey course. And... That's a hard thing to do, and it's politicized. It should be the responsibility of the department to sit down as a group and do it. But they don't want to do it, and they don't want to get into the whole fray. When I was an undergraduate at Penn, my management professor, Steve Salbu, held his office hours after class at Fiesta Pizza, and most of the class joined the festivities for the conversation and food. Does that happen anymore? 
Well, I think it depends on the school. We try and do that in the Honors College where I am. But it's hard because these students have such packed schedules. I mean, we try, and some of them do come, but often their work takes precedence. They feel so stressed by work, and they feel such a fear of not getting a good job after graduation. I mean, I'm in a school with a co-op program where they do various six-month co-ops. It's a five-year degree, and they're working all the time, working or studying. Next topic is boy versus girl talk. When I go to a dinner party, the men and women separate either immediately or at dessert. I know exactly what you mean, but I can't stand it. And I work against it. And I stay with the men. Six is the ideal for a dinner party because more than that, you splinter. The splitting of the sexes, I mean, yes, It happens, and maybe I shouldn't decry it as much as I do because there are gender differences, there's no doubt. But I'd rather go out with my women friends and have lunch and talk with them than if we're all together, then I want us all to talk together. I do find that the men's conversation tends to be more intellectual, maybe. That's not really fair to say because I know so many intellectual women. But sometimes we end up talking more about the children and so forth. I really don't want to do that. I notice that female conversations tend to be more emotive, and the females often seek an emotional connection. In my chats with men, the topics are less emotive, and the discussions usually relate to sports, business, politics, and ridiculous things that are hilarious. Do you notice a difference in the topics of discussion between the genders? See, I'm a woman, and I agree with you in that I love talking about ideas, and being irreverent, making fun of things and people. That's my favorite thing. (laughs) So men talking about sports is sometimes a way of doing what women do with feelings and gossip in the children. So they can both be equally sort of mindless, but also cathartic. I do think there are women who like to talk about ideas and be irreverent, and there are men who don't. So I'm not sure if it's gendered, except that women have more experience with the domestic side of life. And they are more generally involved with the children. So maybe they find the emotional connection very helpful to them when they find somebody else who's dealing with the same sorts of things. What else do you notice that's different in the way conversations evolve with mixed genders? I'm very aware of things like eye contact during a discussion in a meeting and there'll be three other men and they'll be talking and I feel that I don't get as much eye contact. Now, is that because I'm wearing a dress and pearls or that they feel I'm more emotional or they feel I am too strident or that they feel that they don't know how to talk to me, they don't know where I'm coming from. And so they want to be with their own kind. (laughs) They want to connect with their own kind. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I do feel that something as subtle as that is very important. It might be because you're an alpha female. Yes, I am. I guess I am. You didn't get to be a dean at Drexel for nothing. You were picked because you're a leader and you speak effectively. You're tough and not a pushover. No, that I'm not. Before you continue, can I ask you, 
Someone like me, if I were in finance, which was your world, right? You'd crush it. No, I think the opposite. I think I would be crushed. You'd do great because you're smart, clever, opinionated, and have good leadership skills. In finance, the goal is to make money. That means you need the best ideas, and you want it now. So it's a true meritocracy. Pretty much. Well, the university is somewhat different. It seems no one even cares what the best idea is. No. But it's still a wonderful environment for ideas. At least it was. How does reading novels contribute to conversation? I talk about literature as giving you something rich and deep to talk about. Within a seminar class, I find that particularly useful. Novels have dialogue. They model a sense of robust conversation. People who read a lot tend to have a lot to say. The key with dialogue in fiction is that it's musical. You have to have a sense not only of what's worth saying, but how to put it into the rhythm of the discourse, of the narrative. My husband likes to say that watching films, good films, you learn how to use dialogue better as a writer. What do you think of the use of dialogue in contemporary fiction? A lot of contemporary fiction that has been acclaimed, I'm just thinking of Jonathan Franzen's books, sometimes the dialogue goes on and on and on, and it's not interesting. A lot of secondary contemporary fiction doesn't seem to add to the drive of the plot, and it doesn't seem to reflect the character, but it is there sort of as filler, and I find that very boring and tedious. I think in the book, in Talking Cure, I take a piece of dialogue from my first novel, Jane Austen in Boca, which is a putting Pride and Prejudice in a Jewish retirement community in Boca Raton. And I take some dialogue and explain how that is where I first learned how to use dialogue in a way that I think was useful. And it's not realistic. It's not like a real dialogue. If you try and copy real dialogue, it doesn't work. And I think that's the problem with a lot of contemporary fiction. Paula, have you enjoyed being the dean? I have enjoyed it, believe it or not. I never wanted to be an administrator. I always was a faculty member who taught and wrote. And then because of a series of happenstances, this position opened and I decided to apply for it. And I've liked it because it involved building something, fundraising for the Honors College at Drexel. And managing people is an art of sorts. And then I love students, and I like trying to get them excited about ideas. We got a grant that I'm proud of from the Teagle Foundation, which tries to develop the humanities, particularly in STEM schools. And we have a program of three courses for first-year students that I think is very useful to them. So I'm proud of what I've done. We have a building. We're all in one place. The first-year residence is attached And it's a community. There's more to be done, but I think I've done all that I can do. So I'm stepping down after next year. I went to college at Penn and Drexel is right next door. It's literally contiguous. As a student, I walked through the Drexel campus on the way to 30th Street's train station. But I did engage with the Drexel campus. 35 years ago when I was a student, Drexel's campus was ugly with orange brick buildings. 
Today, the campus seems much more alive and the facilities are really attractive. What happened? No, you're absolutely right. It has changed radically. I think in many ways, it is a model university for the 21st century. It was, when I first got there, orange brick, just a few buildings, no place to eat. I think it was voted the ugliest campus in America in U.S. News or something like that. When it was close to bankruptcy in the 90s, Constantine Papadakis, who had been the dean of engineering at the University of Cincinnati, was recruited to lead, and he was an extraordinary, vital personality with a kind of self-confidence. He was Greek. A confidence and a larger-than-life persona that was unbelievable. He totally revamped Drexel. He made decisions by fiat, but he really built the university back up. He created morale, everything. Then he died. And John Fry, who's the current president, took over. His thing is civic engagement and building, real estate. And he developed the infrastructure of the campus. And it is really quite attractive now. One of the roles of management is to change direction. Yes. And you only have a few tools available to you. You have your words, you've got the budget, and you can hire and fire. It's very limited. It's very hard to fire people. How do you do it? Well, there's budgetary issues. We're not getting the money and we need to downsize so you're going to be laid off. I mean, otherwise you have to do a performance review that goes on, you know, HR and all of that. There's a lot of stuff. But I do think that I've learned a lot about managing people over the course of the nine and a half years that I've been dean. And I think I was much more critical and blunt in the beginning than I am now. And I am much more careful to choose my battles. There also can be toxic employees, people who just poison the atmosphere and you have to figure out a way to get rid of them and then things will generally fall into place. Does tenure make managing the school more difficult? Well, I profited by tenure. I love having tenure. I feel I'm a dinosaur though. It's probably going to wither away. It's already much less. I do think it's one of those rewards why people go into university teaching. If they get tenure, they get a lifetime job and summer off and holidays and all of that. So it's a lifestyle thing. And it should allow people to talk freely what they think. And that has not necessarily been the case in recent years. I think the university is just going to become a different kind of place. It's already a much more commercialized place with a lot of turnover and so forth. The students are much more in control. They're the customers. And there aren't any jobs in the humanities. In the STEM fields, they can pay them high salaries, but they can move in and out between the corporate world And the academic world, there's a lot more partnerships going on and they have their own companies and they're entrepreneurial and so forth. So it's a whole different landscape. I don't know if it's good or bad. Can tenured professors speak their minds? I think a lot of the censorship is self-censorship. People could speak up more, but they don't want to be ostracized and they don't want to be trolled on social media. That's the real control factor. It doesn't matter if they have tenure or not. They're going to be careful not to offend. 
I was on the high school debate team, and the goal was to persuade a judge that you had the better argument. Do you think conversations should be about persuasion? I think it's not a viable goal. (laughs) And I'm not interested in it. I'm not interested in persuading you of anything. Now, I will get incensed about things, too much so. My daughter's always saying I get too upset. But I'm not really trying to persuade the other person. I'm just trying to air what I feel, what I think. I have an example at the end of the book from War and Peace of the character of Pierre. He's trying to find the meaning of life for himself. But at the end, he just listens to people because he's not trying to change their minds. Now, I think of my friend Dave, who died a few years ago. We fought a lot. I mean, sometimes we wouldn't speak. We once didn't speak for a whole year. But now that he's dead, I hear his voice in my head. I hear what he would think about a movie or a political idea, and it tempers how I think of it. And that, to me, is the way in which you influence somebody else by becoming a voice in their head. I end each episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about? I'm optimistic about human beings. I really love people, and I feel that people respond. When you show respect and goodwill toward them, will respond in surprising ways and will give you back something that's precious. I love these little connections that I can make with people, the man on the street, so to speak, someone on the supermarket, somebody in the Verizon store, the security guard. That I just find that having a little conversation with somebody lifts them, lifts me, makes me feel that the human condition is shared. And I really appreciate that at this time of turmoil and difficulty in our world history. Thanks, Paula. It's now time to switch to our second speaker, Darren Schwartz, who is the What Happens Next film critic. Darren is a leader in sales and sales management and the ideal speaker to discuss interpersonal communications in film. Darren, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Larry. Glad to be here. I thought we would start out first by reflecting on some of Paula's ideas, and then I'd like to go over uh, three films. Yeah. I'd like to do Annie Hall. Yep. Glengarry Gunn Ross. Yep. And her. Yep. Okay. Do it. Paula suggested that the French were particularly good at conversation. Mm-hmm. Have you had any very good conversations with French people? The most I've interacted with a French person, I probably at a French restaurant. Was that full French or was that actually real French? Well, it was in Miramar in Highwood. I don't Those, think they're, they're Hispanic. Probably, well, even the owner is Italian or something. He's Italian. Yeah. He's out of town. I think you're confusing steak frites with French people. You're probably right. Yeah, I don't this think I've talked to a lot of this French is not, This is about French food. <laughs> this is about French people having good conversations. Let's talk about conversation. Yeah. You are an excellent conversationalist. People like yeah. to talk to you. Yeah. What do you think you do so well? My strength is being able to connect with someone based on who they are and what they're saying and what I think they're thinking and feeling versus being overly wrapped into, am I saying the right thing or doing the right thing? How do you think about conversation as a theatrical performance? A hundred percent echoes a theatrical performance, especially in business and in sales and presentation, 
where you're not just communicating and conveying information. Communication, to a large extent, is theatrical. I think there's multiple purposes of talk. Yeah. One is, is to convey information. But second is to make some sort of connection, either intellectual, emotional, or otherwise. Right. How do you think about talk in that framework? Words are a vehicle to connection. And the elements of the impact of a message communication is vital language, tone, and content. And they've done lots of studies on this. And the highest percent is vital language, which is 55%. Tone is 38%. And 7% is a content of the words, which seems kind of like hard to believe. It's been tested multiple times, meaning if you're delivering a message, good body language and good tone will make the content much more appealing than otherwise. Let's talk about Annie Hall. Yes. So Annie Hall, I think, was released like in 1977. And I love Woody Allen movies, and that's why we're starting out with yeah. this movie in particular. It is a talk, talk, talk movie. Right. How is Woody Allen effectively using talk to express his ideas? Well, he's constantly talking, and his mode of communication is wrapped around his emotions. You know, he's a nebbishy, neurotic guy, and he's constantly telling you how he feels, constantly, in his fourth wall breaking to the audience as well as the people he's talking to on the screen. So in both the first scene and last scene mm -hmm. of the movie, he starts with a joke, right. and then he applies that joke to his relationships. Mm -hmm. How do you think about the use of humor or even joke telling yeah. to make a point? I think that if you err too far um, being outlandish or ridiculous or even being sarcastic at someone else's expense, it can be very damaging. Otherwise, if it makes people feel comfortable and aligns you with them, I think it can be wonderful. But you know, I think it takes skill to do that. One of my favorite scenes is a scene with subtitles where they're talking in a very faux intellectual way. But the subtitles are completely different, mm. have nothing to do with the conversation. Right. What did you make of, that is an indication that sometimes a conversation seems to be about one thing, but it's really about something else. So I thought it was well done. And a lot of things that he did in his films, you really hadn't seen a lot in other types of films. I think that was one of them. Breaking the Fourth Wall also, I don't think it was done many times before him. The content you're saying to people is said out loud on what the other person is hearing, but again, what are they feeling and what's the person really trying to convey? So I think it was extremely relevant, and I think it happens way more often than we probably know. There's a famous scene where Woody Allen and Diane Keaton are in the kitchen and lobsters are loose, mm -hmm. and they need to get those lobsters in the boiling hot water. Yeah. And there's some screaming and yelling, but there's banter between right. the two of them to kind of get the confidence to pick up that lobster right. and throw him in the boiling water. Right. Later, after they break up, mm -hmm. Alvy, the Woody Allen character, is in a similar situation with another young, attractive woman right. where the lobsters are loose mm -hmm. and Woody Allen breaks into that same sort of banter right. but meets a woman who's... Nothing. Yeah. Just baffled by it. Yeah. It just doesn't yeah. work. It doesn't register. And in that moment, Woody Allen realizes this relationship can't work. Right. And what am I doing? I need to get Andy Hall back. Yeah. How do you think about communication as an example of which relationships will work or won't? I think it depends on if it's important to you. For me, I think communication with you know, friends or you know, people in my life, it's critical you have that banter. 
I just need that on a core level. I think you do too. Some people just don't need it and some people are not capable of it. What's actually probably frustrating is some people, and I know if you like this, who really want that, but they're not good at it. But first, let's talk about the lobsters for a second. Yeah. I don't know anywhere you can go right now and buy a lobster. You, know, you used to go to Kroger, you used to be lobsters for sale everywhere. Like, do you know one place you can buy a live lobster and come back and cook it? I think that this is something you can do. And you can also- I know you can, it, but where are you? You can order it um, even online from someone in Maine. Or but you can't go pick up, I used to go to the store, you pick, say, I want that one. I don't know anywhere, you can go to a restaurant and see a cage of lobsters like used in the, in the old days. All right, let's move to Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross yes. next. Yes. First, I want to talk about David Mamet mm -hmm. and how conversation in a David Mamet play mm -hmm. isn't reflective of the way people actually talk. It's something else. Yeah. How do you think about dialogue in a Mamet play versus actual human talk? I think about dialogue in general in how it makes you feel. So I agree that for the most part, David Mamet dialogue is not something you would actually experience in the real world, but he's doing it. It's written in a way to make you feel a certain way. There are so many scenes in Gregory and Ross that are like classics. Mm -hmm. And I think my favorite scene is when Alec Baldwin is explaining yeah. you know, the rules of a sales competition. First place wins a Cadillac. Yeah. Second place, steak knives. Third place, you're, you're fired. fired. See this watch? This watch costs $95,000. It's more expensive than your car. Yeah. Let's just break it down. Do people speak like that in sales conferences? Less so now. Do they ever? I've been part of a lot of those. You couldn't have the coffee because coffee's for closers. I've been part of the delivering. Not quite that extreme because, again, that was total over the top. But, yeah, those things happen. Are they effective? This is talk to motivate yeah. action. All right? Get them to sign on a line that is dotted. Let's go. Right. And if you don't, get out. Yeah. Want to leave now? Leave. I don't yeah. care. Right. I don't care. And but there was a lot of F-bombs in all that. But my answer is, I don't think it has ever worked. I think it will work short term because people get motivated by fear. But I don't think it really works. And it doesn't work in the people that you really want to motivate anyways, who are your good communicators, in that case, your good salespeople, certainly not effective or healthy. You implied that there were a number of F-bombs in mm -hmm. that presentation. Yeah. And David Mamet is known as using a lot of profanity yeah. in his work, particularly the F-bombs. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the use of profanity in talk as emphasis to people, both as both a motivation vehicle or in any other purpose? Right. Colorful language can be effective when you get other people emotionally involved. Too much is not effective. And I think part of communicating is I'm observing the person I'm talking to. Am I accurate in terms of what they want to hear and how they want to hear it? I could say the same sentence 10 different ways. I could say it loud, soft, different tone, with body language, without body language, with swear words, without swear words. So that's really the responsibility of the person delivering the message to figure that out. In a work setting, you probably don't want to throw any swear words out there. And certainly in this day and age, you probably are going to wind up in the HR office. I mean, the backstory here is that Mamet worked a summer job in a real estate sales office right. as a young person. And he wanted to articulate in his play how these men spoke to each other right. and what motivated them. Right. And 
they used swear words mm -hmm. and he wanted to lace his dialogue with swear words so that people knew yeah. this is how men behave right. in this sort of environment. Do you think that's what's going on here or was it more of a shock value? Did he think that the audience would be dazzled by excessive profanity? I think it was a shock value. It wasn't new to me that people talked like that. So it wasn't, I didn't need to be shown that as an audience member. But a quick story on my background, when I was 15, I worked in a telemarketing office for something called Lakes of the North real estate property, just like Glengarry Glen Ross. Love it. And just dialing, 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 five to 9 p.m., calling out of the phone books. And all you really wanted to do is get out of there. You know, maybe you can make a couple sales. The job was to get someone to agree to go on a trip to go see the land, make an appointment to go. And I was at the end of the night, a kid answered. I said, is your mom there? He said, mom, you know, someone's on the telephone. Who is it? It's Darren from Lakes the North. Who? Darren, the kid, the kid's saying, who are you? And I hear him yelling to his mom. His mom's saying, who is And eventually goes, tell him I'm not here. <laughs> so he goes, I'm sorry, my mom's not here. And I'm like, so mad and I hang up and not to the kid, but out loud, I say the F-bomb, okay. okay? So, you know, about 20 minutes later, my boss calls me in and this guy wore a cowboy hat, cowboy boots. You know, it was back in the old days, so you can smoke and everyone's smoking, there's smoke everywhere. I walk and I said, Derek, come back here for a second. I say, yeah, go sit down. I mean, this job, like almost nobody was able to convince people to say, yeah, I'll show up on Saturday and get on a bus and go three hours north, northern Michigan, look at empty lands you can sell me on it. No one was saying yes. So, I mean, I was happy to collect my $3.35 per hour minimum wage. He said, did you talk to, by any chance, Danny Goldstein? I go, I don't know. It was specifically Mrs. Goldstein's eight-year-old son. I go, uh, I don't know. Because did you tell him to... F I said, uh, and I was just mortified. I was going to get fired. And I was like, stumbling. He goes, don't worry, it's all right. She called back. I talked to her and she's on the bus at Saturday. So sometimes you can fail, but succeed. Fail forward. People literally can talk differently to the same person and have a completely different outcome. This guy was a master and I was just a neophyte. I was nothing. Can you teach sales? I do. Yeah, it's part of what I do, I think. And what kind of lessons do you impart? You're really focusing on the other person and figuring out, wait a second, do I have something that works for them? And to me, that's the big thing about sales. Nobody has this idea like they're like the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross people, like you're just selling someone something they don't need. Ultimately, if you're in sales, you're delivering something to somebody that fits their needs. And you have to communicate, you have to get on the same page because walls are going to be up when you start that process. People try to sell me stuff all the time. Yeah. And... <laughs> I don't wear sports coats. Right. I don't need a sports coat. Right. I walk into a place and I say, I'm looking for a golf shirt. Mm -hmm. And they say, have you seen our new sports coat? Yeah. And I go, I'm not, I'm not interested in a sports coat. I want a golf shirt. Right. Why does the salesman try to sell him a sports coat? That's one where sales gets kind of a bad knock is, you know, people selling someone, talking to them about something they have no interest in. They got to read the situation. They got to read you. And I think before you start selling someone something, you know, you have to find out what they want, what they need. And that's really where the art is in terms of conversations. Let's make a connection. So I get it because you really were not going to be turned around on the sport coat thing in that scenario. Then don't lose the sale on the shirt. Give the guy what he wants. Dale Carnegie. Yeah. He had been a big influence on Darren Schwartz. In what way? Well, I've taken two Dale Carnegie seminars, the regular one and the advanced one. When I was in my early 20s, 
trying to figure out how to communicate to people, you know, wanting to get good in business and better at sales and have a career. Being in that setting where other people are expressing themselves and seeing how other people communicate and you're kind of in the safe environment is extremely beneficial. One of the best things I learned in Dale Carnegie has got his eight golden rules, I think. And one of the golden rules is that people would like you more the more they talk. It's a little counterintuitive. What was your favorite scene in Juan Carrego and Ross? Some of my favorite scenes were involving Jack Lemmon. Shelly, the machine, Levine. Fantastic. Let me give a little background. This is the scene where Kevin Spacey's character, who plays the sales manager, has just received the latest leads, and Jack Lemmon is offering him a bribe to get him. And then things get heated. Yeah, so it was like a microcosm of his whole essentially failed sales career when he was trying to sell Williamson, Kevin Spacey, right? I'm yeah. giving the leads. He was probably bringing Spacey to the edge where he was like insulting him and deriding him. Then he'd like bring him back and say, hey, what are we talking about? You know, it was yeah. like trying to like punch him and then like hug him at the same time. And it was almost masterful, you know, even though he ultimately he failed. I also liked the scene. Do you think he was ever close? I think that's the whole point. He was close in everything, but he never got it. I did a book club with Stuart Diamond, and the topic was getting more. It was negotiation. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally to negotiation, it's based on talk, mm -hmm. but it's trying to understand the desires and needs of your counterpart. Right. And what was unusual about the scene you described between Shelley Veen and Williamson was everyone in that scene was clear what they wanted. Mm -hmm. It was a price. Yep. In any negotiation, to get to closing, both sides have to agree. Mm -hmm. And it's really not one person's failure. Why did Williamson demand the 100 bucks plus 20%? Once he knew he didn't have the cash, did he just think, you know what, Joe can't perform? What came out later in the movie is how much Williamson disliked Shell. Yeah. I think it's because Williamson himself was a weak character, clearly. He didn't like Shelley because he was weaker than him and there was some level of disgust. So I think he was willing to make the deal with him if he had the cash right there and then. But if he did have the cash, he was like, I'm, you know what? I can't trust you have it or not. I mean, what do you have, eight bucks on him, 30 bucks? Yeah. And I'm gonna give you the needle just to screw you as well. So do you think he was just playing along? I don't think he was playing along. I took it as he would have made the deal from loser to loser. But if you don't have enough money to give me the money now, I'm not yeah. gonna better back and break the rule and, and get fired potentially. So I'm also not only going to say no, I'm going to make you feel bad while I do it. What I think was surprising about going Gary Ben Ross is that no one was looking out for the company. Nobody. These salespeople were ruthless. Right. They were ruthless with their customers. Right. Lying. Yep. They were ruthless with their sales manager. They were ruthless with the firm. Yep. They were ruthless with each other. Yeah. The knives were always out. Yeah. Why is sales fundamentally a war against everyone? <laughs> you, did, you did that thing. What's the word? I got to figure the term when you do that. You ask a question that is such an outrageous <laughs> assumption. First of all, it is not a war. If it's a war, then it's not a good product or there's not good people. You just said it yourself. With the guy who wrote the book. Getting more. Yeah, you, yeah. You're either on the same page or everyone's happy or no one's happy. Why are the knives yeah. out? Yeah. For everybody. The knives are out because they're selling land. It's an 
impossible, impossible product. product to sell. At the end of the day, it may well be that you buy the land and you build a house. This Lakes the North thing that I was selling for, I looked it up. It's a community. They built these houses. You know, they probably raised their families there as vacation homes. It totally worked. But you can't just advertise and say, hey, call us if you want to buy empty land, vacant land. You know, it's like the butt of all sales jokes. So it's a tough, tough job. And because they're not making money on the land right now, you probably hire salespeople with no salary. And it's just a kill or be killed business. And even the top sales guy, Ricky Roma, and he was top on the board with 90,000, right? He was about to get the El Dorado. They showed him making the sale to Jonathan Price. And that was art. Wasn't that? Yeah. That was, it was, it was magic. Not, it was magic. It was not a soft sell. Nope. It was, you know, I don't know. I don't care. Here's what right. I know. Here's what I don't know. Yeah. So tell us about that essence of sales, the soft sell, yeah. the connection, the emotive, giving him his masculinity, giving yeah. him his strength. Yeah. So he's not only affirming the purchase, but he's affirming himself in his place in society, his status. Yeah. yeah. It was amazing to watch Pacino do that because- when you're listening to it, you realize, what is he talking about? I mean, he's not even talking about land. He's talking about a man thinks this and a man thinks that. And does he take risk? Who cares? Does it matter? You get things, you get the, who cares? He's building the case. Seems like ours, right? Yeah. Probably three, four doers. There was a lot of scotch involved. It was doers, wasn't it? I have a feeling. Yeah, it was doers. And there was so, ice cubes too. Ice cubes and doers. And you could see... Jonathan Price's eyes were just lighting up. You learn later on really how much weakness he has and he knows he has. If you put yourself in Jonathan Price's seat, he's looking at Ricky Roma, Al Pacino, in amazement. This guy is so like in charge of his world and he's like talking to him. And when it comes down to the, okay, I'm selling you land, where he pulls out that brochure, it's an eightfold, and he smooths it over and he goes, look at that. Look at it. And it, what was it? It was a picture of a flamingo. It was a flamingo on a lake. <laughs> There's no little houses. There's nothing. There's a flamingo on a lake. And it was this big reveal. And you can see, like, it took him all that time and all that mastery and all that Michigas to then reveal, and I'm here to sell you something. And there's a moment where the guy who's being sold knows this is a sales call. Because you can see that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get right. it. I'm on a sales call. Right. And so now, ultimately, with the Jonathan Price character, he came back the next day. Office had been robbed. Yeah. And that's when Roma and Levine, they did the quick, like, hey, listen, we got to put on a little act here. Right. Remember? And Roma's only goal at that moment was delay. Was delay. Because there's a three-day right of rescission on real estate transactions. And he figured, okay, if I can wait till Monday, then this guy's going to come back in. I'm going to say, I, I, we don't honor your rescission. So that tells you that that moment that Ricky Roma also was a bad guy. Right, he was the top sales guy, but he was a bad guy. And then you also see Jonathan Price has revealed how much he wanted to do it. He wanted to be the buyer because he wanted to prove to himself and to his wife, but also his wife said, go down and cancel this. This is not a thing that you should do as a man. So in the 1990s, I was working on a project and we had gotten a Salmon Brothers entity rated AAA. And I get a phone call from Rep, who I worked with on this transaction, he said, Larry, we're going to have to downgrade his entity. I go, what? He goes, yeah. I said, all right, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be over with the CEO of Sound Brothers in an hour. Can you get the CEO to meet with us as well? Yeah, I think I can do that. So I go up to the CEO's office, and I don't really know the guy. Okay. okay? And I go to his secretary, and I say, I have an emergency. I need to see the CEO. And it's Derek Maughan. And Derek comes out. And he goes, Larry, 
this better be important. <laughs> I had to hang up on Warren Buffett to talk to you. What is it? I explained the situation. And he goes, what do you want from me? <laughs> and I said, I organized a meeting in 15 minutes from now. We're going together. He goes, what do you want me to do? I said, I need time. I need you to sand in the wheels. Okay, that's the objective, okay? <laughs> he puts on a sport coat. We walk out. We get in the cab. He goes, all right, give me as much detail as you can. So on the cab ride over, I tell him as much as I can. We walk in. Now remember, I asked for the meeting. It's the CEO. It's my friend and his boss. And Derek goes, you're meeting. Now, I had asked for me. It wasn't a meeting. <laughs> so the CEO... But this is not his first rodeo. This guy knows okay. how to handle himself. So the CEO gets up, and he says, you know, well, you know. Yeah. And Derek interrupts him in his introductory sentence, and he goes, this is bullshit, okay? We're going to destroy you. <laughs> this kind of behavior is ridiculous. Is that what you want? You want a war with Zom Brothers? Is that what you want? He goes, well, of course not. He goes, all right, here's what we're going to do. And Derek offered a compromise for delay. And so he goes, I'll take it. Okay. We walk out. He says, how did I do? Backstage. I go, you were fantastic. He goes, mission accomplished. Now figure it out. I'm out of here. <laughs> so <That's great. laughs> later, calls me on the out and says, what happened? He goes, oh, my God. The CEO was so mad. He turned to my boss and basically said, this can never happen again. Okay, do I make myself clear? Now go fix it. So, as usual, like, you don't get to see in business because yeah. oftentimes right. the whole scale of organizations yeah. in right. a clash, right. where everyone has similar objectives, where negotiations can be made right. to figure something out that comes up with a reasonable solution. And we got there yeah. because we got delay. Now, sometimes the backstage becomes the front stage. Oh, for sure. I caused a break in a scenario like that. I was a Groupon and one of the sales reps had had a communication with, with the merchant about a deal we were gonna run on the platform. And there was a miscommunication and they wanted to talk to someone higher up. So I got involved and they wanted a certain percent. We weren't willing to give it to them. They thought we'd done something wrong, back and forth. So I then, replied to my boss, Andrew Mason at the time, who's a founder of Groupon. And I said something to the effect of, these guys are being ridiculous. This is outrageous. You know, I feel like they're trying to take advantage of us. We shouldn't do this. I got an immediate little chat box pause out from Andrew that said, no, like N and like 17 O's. And I'd replied to everybody on the email. So now I want to talk about your heartbeat. What okay. happened? 200 beats per minute or maybe zero. I, it was, it was, I don't know. It was so horrible. It's like, oh my. But then what do you do? I think I maybe communicate with Andrew real quickly. But at that point, the only thing you do is it's honesty. Because I, I hadn't insulted the guys. I didn't say, you know, they're awful people or any swear words. But I got the guy on the phone and I said, okay. I'm sorry about that. However, it is kind of how we feel. I was being honest with my guy. We're trying to work this out. Mistakes on your end, mistakes on our end. But let's just work this out. I'm sorry you saw that. But it actually led to an honest dialogue, and we figured it out. It was no big deal. But for those three minutes, I was about to die. All right. Let's talk about her. Yeah. Did you love it? 
I yeah. saw it in the theater. I liked it. And I thought it kind of seemed outrageous. Like, come on, are you really going to fall in love with your operating system? Like, that, that can't happen. Your operating system doesn't talk to you. We watched it the other night. I have to babysit you. Make sure you don't fall asleep in the room. Shaking. Yeah, you get a little stick poking me. And I liked it much more this time. I did too. And I think also it's realistic to say that this... This is real. It could. It's real. This is happening Chat GBT. now. Right. Okay. Now. It literally could happen. Her is about a man... Joaquin Phoenix, but is clearly in the future. In L.A. In L.A., who falls in love with his operating system, with an Alexa or Siri-type voice that's on his phone. She becomes his virtual assistant, opens his mail, he can ask her questions. There's clearly artificial intelligence in there. And at some point, it kind of transitions to them having more intimate conversations, and it's like becomes a relationship. And he falls in love with his operating system. As a little background, he's just coming out of a divorce. Right. And he's vulnerable. And he's looking for a connection. And I think fundamentally why we chose this film for this discussion is it's not about body language. None. And it's not really about content, I don't think. This is about talk being the basis for a relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's effective and it's believable. Mm -hmm. What is it about talk that is fundamental to a successful relationship? Well, one of the big things was tone. And then he said a couple times, well, why'd you say it like that? So I think the tone and the content were huge because they got to the point in the middle of the movie where she was saying things in a way that they were very loving and they were very caring. And it's like, oh my God, this is literally like, could be like a real person who's giving him emotional nourishment in the way that she's talking. So I think that's the key. Fun fact. Yeah. Scarlett Johansson was not the original voice. Right. They fired someone, and she came in and did a voiceover after the film had already been done. How did she do? She did amazing. And what was different about this experience is I did not know it was Scarlett Johansson when I watched the movie for the first time. Oh, really? I knew. And I wish I wouldn't have known as I was watching it now, because I was trying to really keep that out of my head. Oh, you think it's unfair, because Scarlett Johansson has a body. Scarlett Johansson definitely has a body. So I was able to visualize, okay, she's an actual person. I remember watching it the first time, and I could not connect it to a person. So, you know, she giggles. Yeah. She uses pauses. Yeah. She can use silence. And her voice can crack, mm -hmm. if necessary. Yeah. It seemed natural. It mm -hmm. seemed human. Right. But what was amazing was watching Theodore mm -hmm. grow with just a voice, mm -hmm. he had no sense of loneliness. He was totally fine, okay? And Theodore was friendless, and then boom, he's got an operating system, he's fine. Right. He's right. really made huge progress over this period of time. Mm -hmm. Tell me about conversation and personal growth. It gave him confidence and a sense of self, and I think that that's what relationships are, is you're able to see yourself through someone's eyes, and hopefully it's a good thing. Without that mirror, without that voice, sometimes you just left yourself out. Comparing 2013 to now, there is no question in my mind that people can have a relation with their AI. Have you used ChatGPT yet? I mean, not enough. Okay. To make I've used it once, and I wanted to write a funny thing about my friend. I plugged in like five lines about it. It wrote two pages that was, for the most part, accurate. It was terrifying. Without question, it is much more realistic, and the fact that it's realistic made the movie more enjoyable. I agree. Yeah. A hundred years ago, maybe 150 years ago, yeah. 
people said the difference between man mm-hmm. and animals is the ability to talk and communicate. Yeah. And with this automatic operating system, yeah. they do talk. Mm-hmm. And it's going to speak more coherently mm-hmm. than some of the people who we know. In this room. Yeah. <laughs> so are we going to redefine what we mean by being human? You could certainly argue that AI could be categorized as an earthling. My dog's from Earth. He's an earthling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is this microphone. There are so many amazing applications, but that's not always how it goes. You know, like 2001 Space Odyssey, the monkey of the bone, what's the first thing you did with it? Smash the skull. And yeah. you know, then they're off and running. So, My grandfather was both a physician and a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And he believed that to cure somebody, he had to learn about their personal problems mm-hmm. and let them talk. Yeah. And then he could try to understand their medical problems. If they come in and say, I can't sleep and I can't eat, mm-hmm. is it a medical problem or is it something that's a psychiatric problem? Mm-hmm. And Paula's book is called Talking Care. Mm-hmm. The essence of it is, is Freud was onto something about talk to deal with problems. Mm-hmm. How do you think about talking with an animal, talking with a friend to deal with your real life problems? I totally agree with it. And I think that talking to someone who can give you feedback and you know, you're in a safe space, is this a safe space? <laughs> There's tens of thousands of people who will likely listen to this. You have to be honest with the person you're talking to. You can go see a therapist for years and they can be working with what you're telling them and they're just, you know, and you may not be telling them the most important stuff. You have to be honest with yourself and honest with the person you're talking to. And I think the real breakthroughs come not with the words that you're hearing from the therapist, with what you say to yourself. Because once you acknowledge or admit or identify something to yourself and you truly buy in, then I think that, you know, that's where real growth comes from. David Mamet in his book, Mm -hmm. How to Direct Film, he says in the first chapter, show, don't tell. And the irony here is that... It's all tell. It's all tell. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, oh my God. But maybe, maybe that goes back to the dialogue, the way that they speak is so not consistent with reality. So maybe what he's doing is he's showing that style instead of overtly telling you something. Do you love banter? Love banter. Yeah. You live for banter. Live for banter, absolutely. I love banter, Larry. And what I'm optimistic about is the ability to interact and communicate with people that are in my life or new people that I know. And I think as I've gotten older, I've become much more comfortable doing so and finding people like you who also love banter. That a lot of people do. It's kind of a subgroup of humanity that likes to kind of interchange David Mamet, fast talking kind of style. So I've always loved that and I'm optimistic about continuing to be able to do that. Thanks to Paul and Darren for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. The podcast was Embracing Autocracy in the Middle East. Our speaker was Robert Kaplan, who just released a new book entitled The Loom of Time, Between Empire and Anarchy from the Mediterranean to China. 
I love Robert Kaplan's work and have read a dozen of his books that delve into the politics of the developing world in places like the Balkans, the Middle East, and Asia. Kaplan made the case for realism as a foreign policy approach in the greater Middle East and with our ongoing power struggle with the Chinese. He doesn't expect these societies to be liberal democracies like ours. Instead, his hope is that these countries can have some order without descending into anarchy. And I want to make a plug for next week's podcast with Michael D. Smith, who is a professor of information technology and marketing at Carnegie Mellon and has just published a new book entitled The Abundant University, Remaking Higher Education for a Digital World. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email me. And I want to thank everyone for joining us today. Goodbye.